Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, I'm Brendan Wesser, and this is New Books in Science Fiction. My guest today is Hiren Ennis, here to talk about their debut novel, Leech. Welcome, Hiren. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. So excited. We're going to have a great conversation today. Um, A quick note before we get started, Leech is a horror novel containing themes of violence, medical experimentation, and bodily autonomy. Our conversations on the book during this podcast may touch upon those elements as well. Iron, to kick us off, could you give us an overview of your book? Yeah, so I like to describe Leech as soft sci-fi gothic body horror, which if you sit through that and say, yeah, then you're on board. So it is about this hive mind parasite who, in an effort to basically curate a niche for itself, has essentially taken over and possessed a number of human beings and has made a role for itself caring for other human beings as doctors, essentially. Uh, it This novel takes place far, far in the future, maybe a couple apocalypses after, you know, the inevitable one coming up or however you want to think about that. Um, and this Dr. Parasite Hive Mind receives a letter or a message that one of its bodies has expired in the frozen province of Verdira. And the book opens with them riding the train up north uh, to essentially find out how one of their own bodies has died. That is a lot of things happening. <laughs> I, I just want to say I, I love how succinctly you put it because I've been trying to describe this book to many people and it is definitely not as succinct as you just wrapped it up. 
Um, I love the idea of soft gothic sci-fi body horror. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it is, but that's kind of what it is. It's it's definitely not hard sci-fi. There are a lot of you know sort of fantastical elements, and a lot of things go purposefully unexplained. So it, it's not really a book that goes into excruciating detail of the science behind everything, but the science does play a big role. And I'm curious too, because I feel like we don't often see Gothic and sci-fi placed in the same sentence with each other. What gave you that inspiration to kind of play with both of them? Uh, Essentially the Gothic came first for me. Uh, I wanted to write a book that was, um, that took place in a sort of beautiful Alpine backdrop. And I knew I wanted something horrible to happen. Um, And I've always been kind of a big sci-fi fan and Gothic and and sci-fi aren't really that all that disconnected. Like you think of Mary Shelley and and Frankenstein was probably the first entry into that cross genre. And it's very, very famous. So this book was sort of in the making for many years. Uh, At first it was, kind of a a zombie apocalypse uh, scenario in the mountains. And then it was like this really terribly told uh, techno fascist sci-fi. And then eventually I decided that I wanted it to be something medical. And I was really enamored with the microbiology that um, I had been doing recently because I was working in a biophysics lab uh, studying chemotaxis and bacteria. And so the the really complex and super interesting mechanisms of behavior of microscopic organisms was at the forefront of my mind. And so that ended up being married to this sort of like cold, isolated um, manner background that I sort of had going on, like smoldering for a long time. And yeah, that's that's kind of how the sci-fi showed up. I like it. And I and I like that evolution too from like zombie apocalypse to microorganisms to this parasite or this parasitic organism that you have um possessing human beings. <laughs> um and I'm curious too because if that wasn't enough on its own just having one, you end up having <laughs> two. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. how did how did you evolve into like hey that, that's not enough just to have one we need to have another one well I kind of wanted to explore the ways in which this sentient hive mind parasite would view itself uh, because essentially it is occupying a whole bunch of human brains right and that the chemistry of human brains is so complex and so intricate and so much bigger than the sum of its cellular parts that my thought is if I'm a parasite sort of using a human brain to interface with the world, then the physiology of that interface will necessarily affect the way that I adapt and that I think of myself. And so I wanted to have dual parasites because I wanted to have a sort of more, I don't want to say traditional, but a sort of simpler 
more quote unquote primitive life form that this extremely sophisticated and uh, frankly a bit smug and self-centered parasite can contrast itself against and have that mirror you know held up to it and explore the different ways that parasitism can appear it can be brutal and wholly biological and um, you know sort of sort of primitive and, and and violent and monstrous and infective or it can be more subtle it can be social it can think of itself as ethical it can um, take care of us it can pretend to it can parasitize us under the masquerade of care essentially and so I really wanted to have two parasites with two extremely different ways of infecting and two extremely different ways of interacting with their host bodies. That's really fascinating. I think the idea of being able to kind of view oneself from another perspective, as well as that othering idea of not just the othering of this hive mind parasite against humans, but against something that may be more biologically similar to itself. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that in terms of, obviously, when we're talking about, you know, thinking of a parasitic being, um, issues of bodily autonomy come up, but you're not limited in the story and how you tell the story of these characters to bodily autonomy just to the way that those characters work your your humans are characters are also going through these ideas of what does bodily autonomy mean can you talk a little bit more about that yeah so i like to joke and and tell you know well so when i was first finishing up the book everybody asked me like what are you going to name it what are you going to name it and it took me like 2 years to name the damn thing uh but i settled on leech because it has several meanings, right? Like uh, leech is, you know, a parasite, obviously. And it's also a sort of a, a slang term for a doctor, which is our main character. But I also used to joke that, yeah, it's about the parasitic landowning class. Haha. But it it is <laughs> like that. That tends to be, you know, one of the themes is, is social parasitism and, and, like the setting is very much, uh, you know, it's it's very much within that theme. It's um, a small northern town with an extraction economy. It's a mining town. Um, one of the th- the themes of Leech is is that even after so many sort of apocalyptic reiterations of essentially losing and starting society again there are still forces that are attempting to dig up and resurrect the oppressive structures that we find ourselves in now. And so I wanted leads to have essentially a bunch of meanings um, for somebody who is infected with a parasite that changes behavior. Bodily autonomy is very, very bodily. (laughs) Um, It, you know, it's physical, it's, internal and then for other characters the autonomy can be the struggle for autonomy can be entirely external like uh you know ellen for instance um the wife of the son of the baron who rules uh verdira 
is sort of trapped in, you know, a marriage that she is certainly not happy in. And she has all of these expectations put on her body uh, to essentially birth a whole bunch of viable heirs. And she can't do that. And that is pretty much like the, the social, you know, social parasitism of her body. And then there's a lot of issues of um, consent for medical procedures and things like that, that, that we get into as the book goes on. And and so I, I feel like there are a whole lot of different ways that autonomy is explored. And it's interesting because I originally uh, set out to, I, I kind of had a simple thing in mind. Well, simple, <laughs> not simple, but I had, my goal was like to explore the relationship that a parasite might have with its own host if it was trying to be a mutualist, right? If it was trying to be beneficial to both species. And then as the book went on um, and the other characters sort of revealed to me the way that they parasitize each other interpersonally and the way that the extractive economy and the resurrection of essentially this capitalist mindset is a parasite on the landscape itself. And so autonomy and uh, self-determination sort of demanded to be addressed. And so the book kind of veers around when it comes to like genre and pacing. And I think that it was, it was at the behest of this theme that really, really demanded to be examined. And that's one of the fun things about writing is that that unexpectedness, right? When you sit down and you think, this is the story I want to write. And as you're writing it, it's like, no, 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 no. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. This is going to be a story about autonomy. <laughs> and about yeah. These- <laughs> yeah, the the story itself is a parasite and it changed my behavior. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what it told me. Uh, curious, if it took you two years to kind of find the right name for the book, what were the other options in the running? God, I don't know if I truly had any. Um, I think I was toying around with the name Warm Bodies. And then somebody was like, you can't do that. That's a that's the name of a teen vampire movie or, or something. And so I kind of dropped kicked that one. For most of its life, it was just called either like the word document was parasites or Verdira or that Gothic book. Like it, it really was nameless for a long time, which I guess kind of fits into the theme, you know, it does. It needed to find its own way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Um, I love, I love this idea. And again, you put it so succinctly, I'm going to be able to talk about this book so much better after this this interview. So thank you. Thank you for helping me. Thank um, you. <laughs> um, the idea of resurrecting oppressive structures. Um, for me, I think this is probably one of the, the most interesting parts of the book um, when we're exploring uh, the, the barren sun. Um, I, I am not a fan of this character, mind you, but I, you've given that character such depth in this, his role as both almost the uh, perpetuate, well, he is a perpetuator um, of this, an oppressive structure and a little bit as a victim of the oppressive structure. Was that a purposeful dis- distinction that you wanted to make with him? Yeah, I think in the end, it, it ended up being 
more purposeful. Uh, originally, he was more of a perpetrator than a victim, but he. I also wrote him the way that he demanded to be written, and it really is kind of the reality of, of oppressive structures and like people who are overtly benefiting from oppressive structures also can be victims at some some level. And I thought it would be more realistic and, and maybe a little bit, it would do his character a disservice to leave that out. And like, I don't really like the guy either, uh, but he's still human. He still has all of these different uh, facets and his, his own suffering and his own victimization is, I hope, and I'll leave it up to the reader to decide if I got away with this. Like I hope presented not as an excuse, but more of an explanation or an acknowledgement that it's not necessarily an entirely black and white relationship that people have with the structures that both um, make their lives materially better and materially and or spiritually or socially worse. I think that's fair. And I think uh, there were moments in the book where I was not as confident in how I was going to feel about that balance in the end. But but I will say perseverance, dedication, <laughs> reading the book paid off. And, oh, I, good. and I think, <laughs> and I think you, and I think it did work out in the end. I think one of the fascinating things for me, fascinating is going to be my word of the day. Just so you know, I think I've said um, it three times already. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the fascinating things for me about the book is that you don't just rely on one one character with their own kind of trauma that they're working through or their own, um, their own issues. Although I, I feel like trauma is probably the right word. Um, many of the characters in this book each have their own traumas, um, which I think just adds these different layers of complexity to this idea of, you know, everyone has their own internal struggle. You can be the judge, whether it's more, better, worse than what you're going through. Um, mm. But I, I appreciate the choice that you made there. How hard was it to choose those different traumas for each of those characters and then kind of weave them back into a full plot for the book? Oh, God, I can't tell you much except that it was hard. <laughs> There's a lot of the book is, you know, about how different people respond to different traumas. And, and there's a couple of lines that are pretty much explicitly talking about that. Like the, every brain has its own way of adapting. And um, not only are we shaped by our experiences, but also our neuroanatomy and our genetic predispositions and our own, you know, just the, these internal processes that we, we honestly are only beginning to fathom. Uh, but trauma is such such a difficult thing to work with in fiction because it can be very easily seen or interpreted or come off as like exploitative or uh insensitive or uh and this is especially true for horror i think just sort of something that was thrown in there for shock value 
And so a lot of uh, my own editing, and I, I had a couple of sensitivity readers help me out with this as well, um, is to make the traumas relevant, but not, not exploitative or uh, gratuitous, essentially. And so in order to do that, they all had to be relevant to the plot and relevant to each other's plots as well. And so, yeah, there was a lot of time and effort spent on making sure that the essentially terrible things that happen to these people and the the terrible things they do to each other are all weaving back into the same theme and for a purpose. And yeah, that is pretty difficult, honestly. It feels like it. Did you have like... Did you write the characters and they kind of expressed their trauma to you or did you, you know, go old school and spreadsheet or maybe, you know, like that meme with all the, like the red yarns on a pin board? Oh. Like how, <laughs> how did you, how did you like actually do this? Because it, it is, it's, it, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it, it, I would say that it's a very much a red, red string on a pin board situation with me. I wish I could do spreadsheets that well, but I have this habit of, uh, especially for like world building stuff, I do a lot of notes. I have like a fully separate document for everything that is just like notes, timelines, sometimes family trees if necessary, uh, linguistic stuff in this case, um, some science stuff. uh, And then I make all these like really detailed notes and then I go to write the thing and I don't follow any of the notes. And so (laughs) the writing (laughs) falls out onto the other document and then I have to go back and change the notes and then a different, you know, piece of the writing falls out and that doesn't work with anything. And so then I have to go back in the notes and yeah, it is very chaotic and um, kind of, kind of just like it, it drives you a bit insane, just a little. Uh, and that might be the way to do it. I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could do do a spreadsheet, but <laughs> I mean, you know, there are so many better spreadsheeting tools now for that kind of thing. I mean, it's just yeah. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> uh, but no, I like I like that you admitted to the string on a pin board, notes falling out of a notebook. I feel like. You, you managed to pull it off with all of the different threads, but it's also nice to hear about a little bit about the chaos that goes into it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it is. Uh, it's a madhouse in here. It's not that <laughs> whatever is going on with uh, my word documents is not, not normal. <laughs> uh, well, that's okay. It's all right. No one's judging here. No one's judging. Oh, thank you. I do want to hit upon, um, you mentioned linguistic stuff. Actually, you probably didn't say stuff. That was probably just by notes. I might have. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I, when reading the book, I was very fascinated by the the French Creole, maybe a Canadian French Creole that you had for some of the folks Um or some of the characters in the book, including Priest, um, and kind of the, I don't want to say indigenous, but the, who, how would you refer to them? They're not really indigenous. They're the humans who survived 
um, yeah. these multiple apocalypses, but they've been here for a while. And then we have what we think of uh, or might more identify with as, as humans. Uh, but they tend to speak, well, actually, I take that back. Cree speaks this kind of Creole Canadian and possibly that people would have spoken it as well, but um, they are no longer alive in this book. Spoiler. Um, (laughs) Where did you come up with that idea? Uh, It actually, you know, that's a good question. I think that I did want sort of a local dialect to be apparent um, in this book. But I was unsure if I wanted it to be like, I wanted it to be some sort of romance language. And French was the only uh, language that, uh, well, I used, I haven't spoken it in so long that I probably just can't speak it anymore, but it's, it's still floating around in my brain somewhere. And so it, it was kind of the first thing I spat out and I'm like, okay, let's, uh, let's go from here. This is what I'm working with now. Well, as someone who is, uh, from my last name, French Canadian, um, and living on the border of Quebec over here uh, in yeah. New England, I appreciated. Um, I appreciated it, even if it it wasn't strictly thinking of of Quebecois. Um, it was nice to to see that attempt in the book. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's I don't think that's an unreasonable interpretation. Like somehow a bunch of Quebecois got stuck in the mountains somewhere and then the apocalypse happened and they're the only ones that lived. I mean, that's, that's fun headcanon. I like that. Yeah. And you know, and it makes sense with winters where the snow comes right up to your second story windows. I mean, yeah. It all fits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right here in new England. It just comes up to the first floor windows, but Canada that's yeah. second yeah, floor. Yeah. <laughs> if it's a good winter. If it's a good winter, but climate change. So who knows? We'll see how that goes. Who knows? I'm curious too, for the amount of science that you've been chatting about in terms of biological science, even though you called this soft sci-fi, soft gothic sci-fi body horror, um, how much of that kind of hard science was in your brain kicking around as you were writing this book and what kind of stopped you like from the balance, kind of balancing, not putting more of the science in? That's a great question. And part of it is, part of it is laziness. And part of it is that I really did sort of want this more like a bit surrealist, fantastical, uh, situation going on. Um, and frankly, I don't think that a lot of what happens in the book could truly happen. And so if I went into like, you know, if I devoted myself to realism and and hard sci-fi, I don't think I would have been able to tell the story that I wanted to tell and, uh, be able to, sort of explore themes and, and go places that I managed to do by not brushing off the science, but leaving it half plausible and, and half fantastical because I am still, I'm still unsure if magic is real in this world. And I would kind of believe it if it were, but this is also the kind of world where like, you know, that old phrase, like sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, which is, yes something I've heard way too many times, but 
Yeah, I guess it, I guess it could apply in this case. But I, I really wanted to sort of prioritize the gothic elements and the sort of dark fantasy, sort of manners fantasy elements of it rather than rely on the hard sci-fi. I would definitely read a book like Leech that was uh, hard sci-fi for sure. I would love get like put me into put me under the microscope with these guys. Show me all of like their <laughs> you know their motility mechanisms on a biochemical level. Love it. I'm there for it. I think that Leech probably uh, wasn't really the story to do that though. That's fair. Maybe that's like a, a spin-off short story or, you know, some bonus bonus feature. Yeah, yeah, a case report. There you go. I'll, I'll send it to Lancet, see if they publish it. That would be great. Can you tell them that I would really like that and we just... I will. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's great. As a I love hard science fiction and I'm always a a pusher of more science in my science fiction and, you know, even into these more fluid uh, genres that we're seeing as well. So I think it was a fair question, but to your point, I I think you're right. The surrealism um, and not knowing um, is both frustrating and good. In this book. So, Great. <laughs> so I, I do walk the line between frustration and saying, yeah, I see, I see what they're doing here, but it's still frustrating. Uh, yeah. So I do, I think it's the, it, it is my opinion, obviously it's very important. Um, but I think the surrealism is a, is a good call. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's why I, I preface the soft sci-fi. Like It's barely sci-fi in my opinion. It's post-apocalyptic, but that's kind of, how far it goes. Well, some people might say that some of the medical experimentation might count, maybe. Okay. Yeah, sure. Why not? Well, yeah, talk. well, that's kind of the great thing about sci-fi is that it's so, so broad and there's so much genre bending and genre crossing that goes on that, I mean, it's almost hard to define a lot of books that are sci-fi at this point. Yeah, that's the best part. Yeah. <laughs> You can find what you want to read. That's the best part. Yeah. I'm curious to you, since since we are talking about this post-apocalyptic and how we ended up um, in what feels like more of an industrial age um, or kind of the end, towards an end of an industrial age, right? Because they, they are trying to reach back um, for some of that other technology that they've lost. What was the decision to place it? in that type of society where we're looking at trains and we're looking at, um, I don't know, fires and hearths and, and, and I don't know, I'm just trying to think of some other examples, but this example, this feeling of an industrial society rather than something that's a little more modern or information age. Mostly I think it fit with the sort of Gothic feel that I wanted the book to have. Uh, but I also kind of wanted to illustrate the human habit of repeating not necessarily great or uh, healthy cycles, not only interpersonally, but societally, like the digging up of, you know, the, these old technologies and 
nostalgia for the long forgotten past and uh, trying to recreate things that are lost is kind of a, another big theme in the book. And I think that kind of having like a, an industrialist society sort of helped uh, solidify the Gothic atmosphere, but also I hope it, it, it helped with the theme too. And it's also something that I just kind of like working in. That's fair. At, at points it had kind of a, a steampunk feel, but not too much, like a light touch mm. of a steampunk flair. Um, airships and such. Yeah, airships yeah. and, you know, mechanical body parts that help you and um, and even trains. I always I always have that romanticism for trains, not trains oh that God. we have now because there's no... <laughs> no romance in the trains that we have now i know we have to restore all like the old amtraks to like the the dark wood and the the rattling dining seats and stuff all i want are dinner trains that's all i want out of life (laughs) we have dinner it's funny we have dinner trains here and i have yet to go on one Uh, (laughs) yeah we do have well up up here and i think you're in a a beautiful part of the world as well um Here in New England, we have leaf peeping season, right? With the leaves oh, yeah. change colors. And so, of course, we have to take advantage of a, a dinner train. Yeah, um, of course. And then we also have a cog railway that goes up the Mount Washington, which I haven't oh, that's done cool. either. Yeah. Seems a little terrifying. I don't know that I want to see <laughs> Maybe. <a> cog. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at, like, trains in my, er- <laughs> trains in my area, and uh, <laughs> I was excited about this one dinner train but they had like these they have like these weird like role-playing things where you your dinner train gets robbed and so it's like a train robbery reenactment on the dinner train which seems absolutely bizarre and uh very much up my alley so maybe i'll be robbed on a train soon who knows that's excellent oh my goodness i mean you have to be up for that kind of thing like instead of like i would like i'm here for a romantic dinner (laughs) train (laughs) i'm here for like the the train robbery larping and you know just the most bizarre thing it it just seems very fun (laughs) it does seem very fun i would definitely do a dinner train larp i'm not not gonna lie Uh, so I digress because there's no dinner train uh, LARPing in the book or sadly or robberies, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but <laughs> sorry, I'm just I'm coming back. I'm coming back. That was a good time. <laughs> um, but back to back to the surreal gothic horror. It's interesting to in the book um, amidst all of these people. And they're really not that many people, to be quite honest, who are, are trapped in, in this manner um, for the winter. Everyone's kind of battening down. It has almost a little bit of the shining feel to it. Um, this idea that not only is the outside world inhospitable, the people that you are going to be trapped inside with are not quite hospitable as well. Right. <laughs> And it's interesting that it feels like for these characters that it's just as dangerous inside as it is outside. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, one of the the staples of horror um, 
you know, the call is coming from inside the house, etc. And like being trapped, being snowed in is terrible, but being trapped with the very thing you want to escape is a thousand times worse. Especially if you don't know it's the thing you don't want to be trapped with either. <laughs> right. You're not quite sure if it's in the house or not. You're not sure where the call is coming from. That's <laughs> true. It's true. And for a and for all of the warnings of stay in the house, there is a lot that's happening outside of the house. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> going into the mining caves, going into yeah. the town, um, going into the woods. There's yeah. a lot that does happen outside the house. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, all right. So I think my last question, uh, bef- unless you have questions for me after, uh, my last question is, for you, when you got to the end of the book, and we'll try to keep this as spoiler-free as possible, as you were kind of writing the ending, like, did you always know what the ending was going to be? Or was it this, like, aha moment when you got there um, and how it kind of revealed itself to you? Just curious. I sort of... I sort of knew what the ending was going to be. I knew the structure of the ending. I knew who would be there at the end, what they would be doing, um, and sort of like what their environment would be. And I wanted it to be, I don't know if this is a spoiler. I wanted it to be a little bit circular, uh, but I didn't know exactly the details of it and this is so hard to talk about without it without bringing up spoilers okay hold on but, we'll, do, we'll do an official spoiler warning official okay. spoiler warning <laughs> right now if you don't want to hear the end because you haven't read the book stop now cool okay. <laughs> spoilers ahead let's go <laughs> all right yeah <laughs> so, so i knew who i wanted to be present at the end and that was Simone and Emil and I knew that I wanted them on the train because that's how we started what I didn't know and I still kind of don't know because this is it's sort of a Schrodinger's ending where it's like back and forth in my head and and it's just kind of kept in this suspension uh for literal years is if they actually make it out or not and the question that I kind of wanted to ask at the end was like can you truly escape the body that your parents have given you and that is still unanswered and I don't really want to answer it and I don't think there is an answer <laughs> I mean I feel like in terms of spoilers that was a light spoiler okay um, light spoiler <laughs> I'm I, my best. I mean that's a light spoiler <laughs> if somebody heard it it wouldn't would be too bad I mean I'll I'll call it out but um, but no, it's again another like frustrating but good part of the book is, <laughs> is that exact thing. I think I had to reread the last paragraph or maybe the last two paragraphs like five times. Was that really what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like, sorry and thank you for <laughs> no, no. doing that. <laughs> no, but it's you know, frustrating but good, right? Like frustrating but thoughtful and thought-provoking so i i hope yeah i hope that everyone finds leech frustrating in in the best of ways honestly because yeah i'm a big 
I'm a big fan of ambiguity. It makes me feel a little bit more involved in the story. And I like, I like being given permission to interpret things loosely by authors. And I, I know that's not everyone's wheelhouse. So yeah, if you're going to pick up Leech, just be, be prepared for a little bit of ambiguity. Is what I'm going to say. Well, that's perfect. I, I love, and I'm going to use this, um, that you find Leech frustrating in the best of ways. That is perfect. <laughs> perfect. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up. But before we do, I want to give you the option. Um, what new things are you working on now? Is there anything else coming up for you or anything in the works? Yeah. So um, I am obligated to write a second book for Tor.com. And so that is what I'm doing. It is very very different from leech it is probably as surreal and weird or at least i hope it will end up being as surreal and weird but it is far more urban it's lush it's uh kind of a it's a revenge story uh with opera and drugs and giant centipedes and sword fights um it is so far quite a bit more action-y than Leech, but I hope that it turns out well. <laughs> that's, that's, all, that's all I can say at this point. I hope it goes okay. <laughs> Such a vote of confidence. Oh, yay. I mean, yeah, you, had yeah. me, you had me at Lush. I love the word that you use the word Lush because I just, that was wonderful. Centipede, I was like, eh, maybe, but Opera, Lush. I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, I have been speaking with Hiron Ellis Ennis, author of Leech, which came out in September 2022 from Tor.com Publishing Group. If you've enjoyed today's chat, I invite you to subscribe to be the first to know what's new in science fiction. I'm Brendan Wesser, host of this week's episode. Our theme music was composed by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Rob Wolf edits the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of New Books Network with Leanne Wilson as co-editor. Thank you so much for listening and take care.